Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. David Blackwell served as Dean of the Gatton College of Business at the University of Kentucky from 2012 to 2018. By any measure, he had a successful run. He increased enrollment of the college by a third, increased retention and graduation rates, and raised over $100 million during his tenure, a portion of which was spent on a $65 million expansion and renovation of the college's building. In 2018, though, David was tapped to become provost of the entire Lexington campus, a role that he held for over three years. In this episode of Dean's Council, we learned from his experience about the sheer breadth and depressing nature of the provost's role, the inward-facing nature of the job, and how that contrasts with the outward-facing role that most deans have. Being a former business school dean, we hear from David about some of the advantages he felt he had as provost, how athletics can interface with academics, and the overall challenge of being the chief academic officer of a wide-ranging, research-intensive campus. In closing, Dave shares some helpful advice new deans might wish to consider as they start their terms and provides a few thoughts on what life is like upon returning to the faculty. Well, David Blackwell, what a pleasure to have you on, on our podcast today. We're so thrilled to have you. Well, it's an honor to be invited to participate and uh, two gentlemen that I, I know pretty well. Uh, Ken and, and Dave Eikenberry. Good to see you both. Yeah, we do go back quite a ways. A long Just way. as full disclosure to everybody, Dave and I come out of the same discipline. We're both co- kind of corporate finance guys. David, you had a great run as uh, dean of the business school at the University of Kentucky. And maybe you'll share a little bit more about how things, how the timeline followed here. But at some point, you made the move from being dean of the business school to being provost of uh, the campus, the chief academic officer of the enterprise. And I guess my lead question, Dave, is how did being a business school dean help you better prepare you for the challenges and, and pressures of a provost to give you a leg up or a leg down or maybe elements of both? How, how did that all work? Uh, yeah, sure, Dave. Um, so it's my, my case is idiosyncratic. I actually was part of the internal search to be provost a time before I actually got it. So there, the, the first time there were two finalists and uh, one was the in uh, one was the pharmacy dean and had I known he was going to be in the search, I wouldn't have put myself in the search. So part of the motivation was just not knowing who the new provost might be among the internal, possible internal candidates. And I, I guess I was arrogant enough in some some way to think that I would I would be good for the role. Then then uh, he left after a very short stint, and the president ran an internal search again. And uh, this time I got the I got the job. I think the transition was rather smooth because I'd been here for, for a long time at that point, six years. And I was a colleague to all, all of the other deans. I knew the associate provosts. 
I knew the CFO. I'd worked very closely with the president on on fundraising in particular. And so I felt very comfortable uh, go, going into the role. So I, I think that that part is unusual, that it was an internal appointment. I think where, you know, where it helped me as being a business dean, in, and, as, and in particular being a finance professor, I understood the finances of the institution rather, rather quickly. It was a huge advantage. And as you as you all know, if you understand how the money flows, you know, you understand how the place operates. And so I was, you know, very quick study on the university budget, was very involved in helping to develop that from, from the very, very beginning. As associate dean, I had dealt with uh, MBA programs in, at Texas A&M. I had a scholarship endowment that I had to manage. So that that translated very well into managing financial aid for the university. And um, just general experience really uh, helped me with enrollment management, which was also under my purview at that time. So just the business dean skills applied in a, in a, a different industry, if you will, uh, was, was very useful. I guess to follow, what surprised you? And what did you, what did you find out that you didn't know when you stepped into the role of provost? What surprised me the most uh, was how much time I would spend with the general counsel at the university, and and I say that I say that tongue in cheek, but when you when you go from the dean of a of a small college, and keep in mind business schools generally are small relative to other units on campus. So, you know, think about College of Medicine here has a thousand faculty, College of Arts and Sciences, you know, six hundred, eight hundred faculty. And so the business schools re- kind of small and and fairly cohesive compared to some of these other colleges. And so you just don't get as many bad actors coming kind of coming to your desk, getting to your desk. And um, at the provost level, there's three thousand faculty I was responsible for, and on any given day, something something bad is going to happen, and almost every time it happens, it involves the general counsel. Um, so I spent a lot of time with the general counsel and the VP for HR. That, that was a big surprise compared to being the dean. So you had to broaden your functional skills from finance to, to legal to HR. That, that's correct. Yes, sir. Did you find it rewarding? You know, like more rewarding or less rewarding than your dean role? It was less rewarding than than my dean role. And uh, I'll... I'll give a couple of reasons. One, th- as a business dean, I really enjoyed the external piece, being out fundraising, engaging with with industry leaders, engaging with firms, you know, trying to develop employment relationships or or philanthropy. Essentially, outside the you're outside the building more than you're inside, and I I thought I did well at that. I enjoyed it very much. As provost, you're the chief operating officer essentially, and you're stuck in your office most of the day. And it's challenging to even get out of your office to walk around campus and engage with with faculty and students and staff. You know, that was not a surprise, but something that I did not enjoy as much as, as being a business dean. And I think the other thing is I had, let's see, 19 deans reporting to me, seven associate provosts, uh, three center directors, there's no way for anyone to 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 lead directly or to mentor directly all those other leaders 
And, and that frustrated me. I mean, in a business school, you've got anywhere from five to seven departments, a handful of associate deans, some, some staff directors. And when you're in the office, you can engage with all of them every day. And I, I really did miss that. So how did you tackle the sheer volume of direct reports? Did you put in a hierarchy or you just did your best to try to swallow that fire hose? So I'll, I'm going to quote a, a another SEC provost who had a portfolio like mine, and he's been a provost for a long time. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it, like 12, 13 years. But um, I approached him at a SEC provost meeting when I first became provost, and I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you manage this span of control? How do, how, how do you deal with all these deans and associate provosts? And mainly the deans I was, I was asking him about. And he says, well, I don't hire deans that need babysitting. And I, I kind of took that to heart. I mean, he was obviously joking around, but I inherited seven interim deans, including the position I vacated when I, when I became provost. And so I ended up hiring a lot of deans, uh, including two that I, that I had to replace. And, and so I made it a point to hire the hire people that I knew I could trust and, and, and rely on, and it wouldn't need me too much. Uh, and that, that was a real challenge. You know, when I think about the University of Kentucky and the brand of that university, one of the images, amongst the many images that you have, one of the images is an image of athletics. Athletics is, a you know, whether it's uh, basketball or football or whatever, but I just imagine that that athletics uh, kind of drives the tempo or somehow a affects the organization in a way that's different from a lot of schools as a provost you're on the academic side of the house but did did athletics in an indirect way affect how you did your job the short answer is is yes and, and i'll elaborate you're, you're right about athletics and, and university of kentucky i mean it is it is a big part of our brand and larger than i would prefer it to be frankly i mean i think we've got a great a great story to tell about our academics, about our research. Um, we have well in excess as a university, well in excess of $500 million of research expenditures. We've got a lot of traits, believe it or not, of an AAU university. It's just not widely known. Athletics um, here is, is, does not drive the bus. In fact, it's a partner. And uh, I think that changed when our president first arrived, he changed the governance structure. There was a separate athletics board that the director reported to, and then the, the, the board of trustees and the president changed that so that the athletics director reported directly to the president. And we had we we have an amazing athletic director, athletics director. I had a great relationship with him as provost, and they generate a lot of money. Most of that comes from football, not basketball. I'm like uh what most people think. And a lot of their good fortune was shared back to the, to the university, if you will. And, and it, it helped the whole campus in, in a lot of ways. So yes, it did affect, it did affect me as a provost um, and, and as a Dean, but I, I I'd say in a positive, very positive collaborative way. You know, interesting over the years, uh, a question that I often will get from 
sitting deans is, is it necessary to become a provost to become a president? Sort of with the acknowledgement that it could be perceived to be traditionally sort of a step along the way and that a business dean in some ways is more like a university president than a provost. Um, you know, without being too personal about it, what are your thoughts? What have, what have you learned about sort of the, the, the job of provost and the job of provost perhaps as a preparatory or as a step along the way for uh, university enterprise-wide leadership? You probably know, and I, I've seen over the last several years, that there is a trend of more business deans being appointed as, as presidents. And I, and I think that is an uh, indication of, of you know, what, you're, what you're talking about. Um, it's the external piece that, that really uh, is important to the presidency. I think that being a provost is a big plus. I viewed it as a plus because it really broadened and deepened uh, my, my understanding of the enterprise and especially the governance piece. And by that, I mean the, the relationship with the legislature, the le relationship with the statewide authority governing or regulating higher education. Uh, the the board of trustees, the Senate, and I, I I thought all of that experience was would be really valuable as as a as a president. I mean the other parts, the other parts of being a provost, I think any dean could probably handle at the presidential level. But those pieces, I, I think, are uh, are some things that if a dean is aspiring to be a president, do you have to be a provost? The answer is no, but it will be helpful if if you can demonstrate a, a pretty intricate understanding of, of university governance at the highest level. David, sometimes uh, business schools are kind of perceived as kind of the outcast college, the one that sits on the edge of campus, doesn't really integrate that much, does its own thing. And then, and then for some faculty, uh, they kind of treat the business school as not necessarily doing, you know, the hardcore research that changes society. Personally, I think you and I would both disagree with that. But but there's this perception that uh, that business deans are are really not not a core contributor to the campus. Did people perceive you through that lens, or was that all dismissed rather quickly? I was not perceived through that lens, and. That's because I, I saw that tendency early on after becoming a dean. I saw that tendency, and I made it a point to collaborate with, with the other deans in, in ways that made sense, probably not on research. That, that, you know, that didn't make a lot of sense, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that a bit, but, but certainly on, on some academic programs, on, on working together to develop partnerships with universities overseas, joint efforts to, to enhance enrollment of, of the university in ways that made sense uh, and, that, and that would leverage, you know, would leverage our faculty. I, I pursued all those avenues as a dean. And so I was well known on campus by the time I became provost. So I don't, I don't think that I was viewed through that lens. I have been in a number of, of presidential searches and still kind of follow follow things at that level, certainly at the business school level. I could tell you that 
almost any president of a of a flagship R1 or land grant will say they wish the business school would be more collaborative and, and come out of the silo. And most of those presidents don't come from a business dean background, so they don't really they don't really understand our production function. And and so the way I explain it is a lot of a lot of this perceived behavior is driven by our faculty labor market. I mean, the coin of our realm is publications in top journals and in our top journals and our disciplines, which tend to be narrow and, uh, you know, citations to those to those articles. And that's not I mean, it's it's understood in, in some of the social sciences um, certainly maybe in the humanities, some of the other professional schools. But an institution like the University of Kentucky uh, is is really driven by the STEM disciplines and healthcare. They live and breathe on external research funding. And the external research funding comes when collaborations across units and across faculty from different disciplines are brought to bear on important social problems. And that's where the grant money really, really flows to. And so the challenge is how, do, how can business faculty plug into that? And I, I, I think there are... I think there are some ways across different disciplines for that to happen. It just doesn't always line up with faculty incentives in the business school. So the point I I would make is that if that's what universities want from the business school, they need they need to provide some premium support, uh, some premium incentive to do that because it's you know it's essentially it's something that a faculty member is going to have to do out of the goodness of their heart, or they're going to have to get rewarded rewarded for it uh, directly because they don't want to step away from the main focus, which is research into their discipline. David, uh, some provosts have the CFO reporting to them and the, and the and all the budgetary function that goes with it. And then at other institutions, I'm thinking of the University of Illinois right now, and and also the University of Colorado is this way. Uh, the budget function, the resource flows are actually uh, organized separate from the provost's office. How was it for you? It, it, it was organized separate and had been that way for a long time. But Isn't that I, painful? I think, yeah, it was very painful. <laughs> okay. Not because we lacked a good CFO, because right. we had a great CFO. We do. He, he's still CFO. He, he was a great collaborator. He had an MBA. He ultimately got a doctorate and not and and I think it was in higher ed, but he had a strong finance bent in that. And you know, he and I could speak the same language. And and this is this brings up an interesting point that probably business deans don't often understand, and certainly faculty don't understand it, is that the university budget is not that complex. Most most universities at that level at the university level operate on a it's an incremental budget. It's, it's whatever you got last year in a state university, you know, whatever increment you get, you get from the state, which usually isn't much these days. And then whatever you can raise from tuition. And if you think about giving a raise, just a small raise to the faculty and staff, that's a huge amount of money. It usually outweighs the, any increase in tuition that you can give. And then a lot of faculty don't think about it, but when you, you give a salary 
there's often a benefits load of 25 to 30% of the salary on top of that that has to go into the budget. And, you know, those in and of themselves are really, really expensive and really challenging. And so it's it's uh, just under understanding that and, and um, you know, just trying, uh, I tried really hard, you know, to get uh, resources for the academic side. Um, it was frustrating at times, but because of the good relationship I had with the CFO and my understanding of things, there were trade-offs that, that had to be made. And I was consulted on all the trade-offs. I mean, you know, and, and there's examples like, well, should we, you know, limit the increase in the, in the uh, cost of the health plan or should we not raise the parking fee? Yeah, I mean, because those, you know, all these things affect everybody, not, not just, you know, not just faculty. And I, I will say that I was instrumental along with the CFO and with the cooperation of the president, we finally put in a hybrid, uh, a hybrid budget model, essentially a, 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 an RCM light, if you will. And that's helping the entire campus. And of course, the business school is, is doing extremely well under that model. By the way, that was helpful, but there was a PhD in finance in the building. <laughs> and I had a I had a great vice provost too, by the way. He was um he was deeply involved in that. He he's uh essentially uh computer engineering and electrical engineering, I guess. But his specialty is power distribution systems, very complex power distribution systems. So you can imagine that we end up ended up with a very finely tuned hybrid budget model. Uh, one of the things that's always intrigued me about the step up to a provost role is that the, the multiplier effect on what you need to know about is really notable. And for uh, an intellectual enterprise, the breadth goes from, you know, what you could say is relatively narrow in the management sciences to across all, uh, all enterprise. How, how'd you deal with it? How do you, how do you handle that? How do you sort of stay up to speed and not feel like an imposter when you're, you know, skimming along the surface? <laughs> Ken, that's a really, a really good question. And it, I, I would say it took, it took me the better part of a year to not feel like I was skimming on the surface. It involved spending as much time as I could with the deans. It involved going to each college, meeting with the faculty, listening, uh, trying to understand how their disciplines worked. And candidly, that was a very gratifying part of, of, of the job of being provost. And we have a we have a big healthcare system. So our budget as a university right now is probably approaching six billion and pr probably at least three and a half billion to four billion of that is just the health system. And here's the interesting thing. The provost has to approve all the faculty hires. So when the health system wants to hire a doc, they hire them, they, they want them to be hired into the medical school and I have to, I have to approve it. So that, you know, that kind of responsibility, you know, to me meant I better understand what's going on over there. So I spent quite a bit of time in the health system with, I'll call him the CEO of the health system, the dean of medicine, uh, understanding how funding works in, in those kinds of enterprises. And that, that was a lot of fun for me because I like learning about how new, new types of organizations uh, work. 
Oh, and I'll, I was going to add this. You learn a lot in a hurry when you plow through several hundred P&T cases every January, February um, from all over campus. That's compressed learning, I'll bet. Yes. <laughs> you certainly know, get an understanding what the shape of the bell is. Yes. Well, yeah, you do. You do. But it's it's very much like, um, you know, in business schools, most of the time, if the senior faculty are giving good advice to the junior faculty along the way, the ones that aren't going to make it probably select themselves out before that hard decision has to be made. And that that really that really goes all the way up to the top. So there were rarely cases that I had to actually say no. Dave, if you put yourself back in that provost role, uh, what advice would you have for a new dean, say a first-time dean, business or non-business, who's who's starting this job? You've just hired them, but what advice would you have for that dean as they as they come onto campus and assume this first-time job for them? I, I'm going to go back to when I was a new dean, and and you know I had. 10 years of ex administrative experience at that point. I thought I knew the landscape. But if you if you move to a, another university as a new dean, it's 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 a different landscape. I latched on to the most senior dean at the table and happened to be the dean of engineering. He was very gracious with his time and he he really had been at the university a long time. He helped me learn the ropes. And that that was very helpful. So when I was provost, if I was hiring a new dean, especially an outside appointment, um, and then, and I took a couple of flyers on some really young deans that I appointed. I, I I made it a point either to give them more of my time, or or to to assign um, them to be mentored by one of the more senior deans. But but going in, you know, try to get as much of the provost time as you can understand that that time is going to be limited just because of the, the span of the control, the span of control that the provost has. And then just, you know, get to know the associate provosts really well, get to know, you know, deans that are closest to your discipline and go out and have drinks with them, take them to lunch, um, especially early on. And that'll be very helpful, I think. That's good advice. Our time is uh, drawing to a close, uh, but I was wondering if you could just share a minute or two, Dave, on um, kind of the backside of this. You were a, a provost for six years, I believe you said, but now you're back on the faculty. You're not in that 24-7 pressure cooker, you know, every single day. What's it feel like? How's the transition been? Pluses and minuses. I, I'm tainted a bit because... If you think about, I was provost actually three and a half years, and two of those years probably were consumed with dealing with with COVID. The, pan, the pandemic. <laughs> um, and so, though you know, those days were were twenty four seven, three sixty five, uh, you know, almost literally, and you know, every decision had had ripples. So it, it was it was high pressure. The day after my last day as provost, it just all went away. I mean, there was like a huge weight lifted from from my shoulders, and uh, it, it it felt really good. And so I had the benefit of, um, I guess, I guess an exit 
package that actually was negotiated when I became dean, which was really good. It gave me a year of a year of administrative leave or sabbatical uh, after completing my term as dean, and then the president just transferred all of that into my uh, letter as as provost and a, a very nice step down salary, a, a year of sabbatical, and uh, I used the sabbatical to really try to get back up to speed in the discipline. I sat in a couple of our own doctoral seminars. I, you know, I, I did, I did some other things, you know, to participate in the department and just become more a part of the fabric of the department. And then I'm teaching a new course right now, something I've never taught before, but it's really fun to, to learn new things and fun to engage with the students. So I'm having a, I'm having a great time. However, when I came back, uh, the dean needed someone to oversee our graduate programs. So I'm I'm now associate dean overseeing the professional graduate programs, our specialized master's programs. And uh, there's some irony in that. Uh, but, you know, I just I just like to serve and help out. I don't really have much of an ego in, in a position. I just want to serve the best way I can. And now, you know, schools are calling about dean's jobs again. So so that, that that's coming back around. And really really interesting to think about those i i i really miss that outside engagement piece of, of being a dean well david it's been wonderful to have you here today uh we sure appreciate you taking the time to share these really interesting ideas and, and share your perspective so uh uh ken and i wish you of course the very best as you go forward and look forward to staying in touch Likewise, and I, I really think this is a great endeavor that, that you guys have taken on. I mean, I, a lot of prospective deans, um, people thinking about being a dean, new deans, I hope they can benefit from what y'all, the work y'all are doing. You've hit exactly on our value proposition. So. <laughs> we trust they will, and you've contributed nicely to it. Thank you, Dave. All right. Thank you, Ken. Great. Take care. Bye-bye. So what did you think, Dave? I thought uh, it was fascinating. I thought it was fascinating as well. Um, for us and our listeners here, we were approaching this as deans, but to to have a former dean who was in that saddle uh, and hear his perspective, it was um, really quite refreshing. I was really impressed by the um, and I kind of knew this. I think all of us kind of know it, but the sheer span of control, the breadth of it, is just phenomenal. And uh, you know, finding strategies to handle that. And I know some provosts insert some uh, some staff members. So in other words, there's a filter between the dean and the provost. Personally, that would have been devastating for me. My I would find that relationship really confining if I had to run through a filter. I, I was fortunate. I, I had a, 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 a straight pipeline, you know, cell phones and text messages. Uh, it was a, a great, great accessibility. But um, maybe I was on the fortunate side. Um, but I, that's tough. And, and of course, what comes with that is the dean being the chief academic officer, by definition, is typically dealing with the sticky issues. 
So, uh, you know, when, when I was a dean, maybe sticky issues consumed 20% of my life. But as a provost, that may be consuming 80 to 90% of your life. And it's, it's really, it takes a special person with perseverance and determination to, you know, I think at one point he said, you know, every day he wakes up and it's a new challenge, a serious challenge, a negative challenge. Boy, that takes uh, takes guts to uh, to stay in the ring. Yeah, the kind of resilience it uh, it takes, and 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 you know the jobs are different. So for him to be able to look back at sort of what he brought forward as a business dean, and frankly to diagnose some of the new and different challenges of being a provost, was very interesting. And I hope our listeners really. Um, enjoy that bird's eye view. I also thought, you know, he responded to this question of what what advice do you have for a new dean onboarding? That that was great advice of, hey, sit down and get yourself, uh, you know, obviously establish your relationship with your provost, but spend a lot of time talking to senior leadership who have been around the lap once or twice before. <laughs> Don't make their mistakes. Try to see if you can learn their mistakes and sidestep them. And of course, the benefit to that is you, as you is also transparent. You're, you're developing a real uh, relationship uh, that will span the campus. And in the long run, that's going to pay dividends for you. You know, for us who come to this as business deans, we, you know, we don't always walk into that Dean's uh, conference room at the, in, outside the provost's office with the same same level of admiration and respect, and and I think some of us need to earn it, not by what we say, but 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 by what we do, and I think that was really insightful for him to share that. He also he's a person of great integrity, and it came through uh, throughout the entire conversation. Yeah, what a great session! I I really uh, appreciate that both you and I got a chance to uh, to host this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.